0: Hello, I'm Peter Eyes, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft, career, and what matters to them. If you happened last year to catch the phenomenon that is fangirls, you are no doubt aware of the brilliance of Eve Blake. The musical, created entirely by Eve, celebrated the cult of fandom in the most exhilarating and engaging storytelling. The show broke box office records and guaranteed her place as a theatre maker to watch. Born and raised in Sydney, Eve is an award-winning writer, composer and comedian. She is an alumni of the Royal Court Writers Program and has completed residencies with Griffin Theatre, the ATYP National Studio, Old Vic New Voices, the Barbican, the National Theatre and Princeton University. Her debut play, Sugar Sugar, premiered at MKA in 2015. And Eve has also created several internationally touring solo shows, including the acclaimed Then, which played to sold-out crowds at the Soho Theatre in London. She was the recipient of the 2016 Rebel Wilson Theatre Maker Scholarship at ATYP and a member of the 2017 Belvoir Artists Workshop. So much to talk about, so let's get going in this awesome episode of stages
1: just finished the hsc we're still like in adrenaline mode uh
0: so you're full of adrenaline because you've been in the rehearsal studio
1: oh no i've got i've got a workshop coming up in a week's time are we recording yeah yeah i know that trick
0: what trick is that
1: (laughs) no it's great i use it too
0: well i I yes i wish i'd had it recorded uh, like two minutes ago when i accused you of being a control freak Telling me in my own house. I suggested that
1: we turn off the air because 'cause I've spent a bit of time in recording studios and I've made that mistake myself. Yes.
0: You don't want that um extra noise in the background. (sighs) Just that constant. Yes. I did an interview once and somebody had a grandfather clock in the background. (laughs) Which is absolutely fine, I think, until you become aware of it. And Uh then it gets in your psyche and all you can you tune into that
1: (gasps) Do start speaking rhythmically.
0: No, not necessarily. It's just sort of, (laughs) it can pull you away from the conversation. But I doubt very much whether the conversation will be pulled away anywhere. Talking to you today, (laughs) Eve Blake. So welcome. It's lovely to catch up with you again.
1: Uh, Thank you. I'm honoured to be here. I've
0: only met you once.
1: I know, but we were instant sisters. Instant
0: sisters. And we have had lots of correspondence since. So so it's great. Um, Of course, we're going to talk about all sorts of things today. Uh, Specifically, uh, your wonderful creation, Fangirls, which is already um, sort of a year later uh, receiving a revival in 2021.
1: No, I'm, I feel very, very lucky and and so excited, right? This morning I was listening to your chat with Geordie Shea and you, and you were both talking about how challenging it is to see things revived in Australia. Um, and something that's so exciting, right, is Fangirls came out at the end of 2019 and it's coming back in early 2021. But it has given me this great opportunity as a writer to tighten it and to make changes and to like to make it a faster show and to also having been in it make it a slightly less punishing show for the lead actress (laughs) like there was a lot of high notes I sang and I was like this is just ridiculous so yeah I'm excited
0: was there in that original production was there much of a workshop time that you could sort of finesse and and fix things and see what worked what didn't
1: So that's an interesting question because, uh, you know, when I started writing Fangirls, it was 2016 um, and so it was sort of a long gestation time, right? 2016, 17, 18, it came out end of 2019 and across that span, I think I counted that it was like 13 different readings, workshops, showcase presentations. So it was a really long gestation. for that work and I think that the work really benefited from that um, but yeah I mean I think it just speaks to how challenging it is to write a musical that even then even after it came out we're still making changes
0: yeah how wonderful because you've had a hindsight of, of being right there in the, the centre of it all every night eight performances a week yes. for that original season at QTC and Belvoir yeah Have you made many changes because next year you're coming back in a different space at the Seymour Centre? Have you been able to accommodate the show in a different way or try different things because of the new space?
1: You know, it's interesting. When I did my work redeveloping the text and the lyrics and and the music, that's before I understood it was coming back to Seymour. So certainly, like, artistically, really my priorities were how do I make this quicker and clearer and, frankly, more comfortable, right? Because I suppose doing the show every night truly felt like wearing a pair of shoes that are fine to wear in the shop, but you take them home and you're like, oh, they pinch a bit, right? So now I'm trying to make sure with every role that it's a little more sustainable. Um, but then in terms of the space, I think that really is a question for our amazing director, Paige. And I know um, I was in a Zoom production meeting the other week and listening to how the lighting department and the um, – so we had these, like, enormous LED screens. There's a lot of video design in the show. And listening to how they will have to remap some of the content because the screens will be in different positions in different theatres. Like, I think there's an enormous amount of creativity uh, being used to solve, <laughs> solve for the new spaces.
0: You've been in quite a unique position with the show, in being the leading lady, but also the composer. Yeah. Now, now we look at shows like Wicked by Stephen Schwartz mm-hmm. and Evita Andrew Lloyd Webber, who who are composers who give those women extraordinary
1: screlting, uh, screen, uh, screen belting, right? Screen
0: belting, yeah, exactly. But but you have now seen what you have given yourself. And, oh, yeah. And interesting to see that you're actually. Modifying that a little bit are you the, the, uh, yeah. the vocal demands of the, of the character of Edith
1: yeah so you you make s- Edna Edna Edith,
0: Edith. I'm thinking, Edith. E- um, I'm thinking of fine. Eve Edith Edna I I, same <laughs> amount of letters and it's starts fine. with E so
1: yeah her name's Edna and she gets called Eddie a bunch in the show I don't right. mind at all um Well, yeah, so it's interesting, right? Because I grew up as a kid who loved musicals, but really identified as an alto. Like, I have no problem singing low, high stuff scares the crap out of me. So when I went to write Fangirls, I was like, I'm going to write a lead role that's so alto. And then I worked with this amazing vocal arranger called Alice Chance, and she gave the show um, So Fangirls. is about a group of teenage Fangirls, and it has this kind of churchy girls choir sound um, like smashed with pop and Often she would take these songs I'd written and go, you know, for me to create a harmonic arrangement that will work for lots of female voices, we have to take it up. Like, we have to change the key of this song. So, ironically, I wrote this like really alto show and I went to sing it and I was like, why am I belting a high D for nine seconds in the second song of the show? Um, so, yeah, I, all of this is to say my dream as a female composer is to make roles for, especially for female performers, that can accommodate all different different, I guess, body types and, and um, different skills, right? Like not every solid, amazing leading lady is also going to be comfortable singing a lot of high notes every night. So I think, uh, yeah, with Fangirls 2.0, that's been a huge focus for me. And. I also think, as a composer, um, I mean, when we were auditioning for the show originally, we found some actresses who could not hit the notes that I had written, but who were inherently magnetic in these roles. And in workshops, it really didn't take that much effort for us to change a few keys, or even inside of a song, to have a whole verse switch key, but kind of make it interesting. And um, yeah, I'm really motivated by that in terms of making musical theatre that um, that like. Is ergonomic and can fit individual performers as opposed to demanding that performers do these crazy physical demands just like for some writer.
0: You're obviously a fan of musical theatre. Yeah. Why is it such a great form, do you think?
1: Ooh. I want to quote a really wise, good friend of mine. His name's Adam Lenson. Um, look him up on Twitter, anyone who's listening. He just says the most sage like things about musicals. But he makes this really interesting point to me all the time about how music as a form is so sprawling like there's nothing it can't do and also that music um as an offering is like inherently political right it's me adding my voice to your voice say to amplify a message and to uh, demonstrate unity and so for that reason musical theater as a form really should be capable of anything like music it should be um it, like there should be songs in musical theatre, sure, for when words aren't enough, they, they can be these eruptions, but they, they could also be used to express these like soft, quiet moments and um, moments where words are too much, you know? Um, I think that what's exciting to me about musical theatre is sometimes people see it as a genre and they see it as capable of a sort of narrow set of things. It's sort of like tits and teeth, all singing or dancing. But I think there is so much more to explore and I finally, I think that, you know, if you see a play and it touches you, it's, a, it's ephemeral and you remember it, but it's slightly out of your grasp. And, and something that's so powerful to me about musicals is you can go home and smash the cast album and continuously relive it. And so the lyrics in these shows can be like spells and handrails that you reach for in tough moments of your life. And I certainly have felt that way with, you know, musicals that meant a lot to me growing up.
0: Yeah. Um, You're no doubt a fan of Stephen Sondheim. Yeah. Well, let me share your experience of mine. I remember in the time of, uh, you know, uh, LPs uh, of original cast Mm -hmm. recordings, you would wait, you know, that period during the 80s and 90s when Sondheim was releasing a new show and you'd go down to the record shop and you'd buy the record and you'd go home and I'm just having afternoons of bliss where you would put on the first act and then the second act and listen to every word and note Mm -hmm. of that score and just be transported um, through the storytelling. It was, it was wonderful experiences. And I sometimes um, feel sorry for your generation that you don't have that sort of pleasure.
1: Well, do you know what that makes me think of? So my equivalent of that story is, gosh, when I was like 14, 15, um, it's when no one sue me, but LimeWire was big, like stealing music oh, on yeah, the internet, yeah, yeah. right? Okay, yeah. So. um Uh, Gosh, Like, I saw on YouTube a Tony's performance from some show called the 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, and it looked fun. So I typed it into LimeWire, and you could get, like, a few songs. And so I would sit on the back of the bus and just listen over and over to specific songs from that show. And I I couldn't afford to see the Broadway production. I'd seen the the Tony video, so I had a sense of maybe what the characters might be like, but it was really... It was interesting, right? Because uh, I guess but this sat between my headphones I was trying to conjure what it might look like and what every word might mean and so I remember and maybe that was the same with the Sondheim record like you're listening and you're you're trying to it's a it's such an active uh experience of being an audience member you have to add you have to offer so much imagination to what you are being offered
0: yeah. What does the set look like? What's that character yes. look like? What's happening now? Yeah, it's Yeah.
1: I think I think also it developed me a lot as a a baby theater maker, right? Mm. Just mm. imagining what might be happening on
0: stage. Yeah. Yeah. Did you learn an instrument as a child? <laughs> Do you have an instrument that you play? No, no. You really? I
1: tried and failed four times. No, wait, let me think about this. So um, I got assigned the euphonium in year four. I was truly like the smallest kid in my year. So they're like, great, she can carry around the suitcase to and from school. So um, yeah, that didn't go so well. Let me think, and then my parents took me to piano lessons for like a year or so, but by the end I could really only play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, so that was a, that was a dead end. Um, and then I, oh yeah, and then in year eight, so you do, you know, you do music in year seven, but then in year eight, if you want to do it as an elective, you have to play an instrument. So I feel like they made me try to pick up euphonium again and then after a term they realized that wasn't going to work. So then I started learning guitar again, absolute dead end, year nine music rolled around and they were like, listen, um, you can't play any instruments so you can't do this subject and that was really the end of the road for me. Um, And then I I got a couple of singing lessons in high school because I really wanted to get into the school musicals and I was lucky I just got away with the kind of speaky parts in a couple of shows. Um, but that's really my musical history. I can't read or or write, you know, music on a stave. Really? Yeah. I, I. So when I was about 20, like, I just carried this big heartbreak that I had always made up songs and sung them into my phone. But I had – it felt like I was a computer with no printer, right? There was no way to get them out. So when I was 20, I uh, just got a bunch of software – Um, It's called Ableton Live, right? And it's a composition software. And I just watched a lot of YouTube videos of sweaty teenage boys giving me tutorials on how to use it. And I taught myself how to use it to compose songs. And and that's what I use now.
0: Wow. I mean, I'm pretty sure the great Irving Berlin... You ever heard of Irving Berlin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Couldn't read or write either. And he, he did all of his composition on like a player piano, which recorded in a way... Th- what the music would look like. Right, so, not
1: so different. Yeah,
0: yeah. So um wow, what about that? Fantastic. And then somebody um takes that and arranges and Yeah, and- so well
1: what's great is I I get asked about this a lot, but like I compose kind of on my qwerty keyboard like on my laptop, but because it's all going into the software, I can then export what's called MIDI, it's like a file that then a music director can put into a program called Sibelius and and it converts that into a stave. So it literally my computer tells her computer, these are the notes and like this is the rhythm. So at least she has that kind of data to use to then build a score. But yeah.
0: So do you, you obviously have the melodies in your head. Yeah. Yeah, and then you've just got to work out.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, originally, when I started writing Fangirls, it would be as simple as, um, not simple, it would be the opposite of simple. I would record into my phone a melody and I'd hum that. And let's say then the melody is like, hmm, 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 hmm. So I'd have the first note, I'd get out a guitar tuner app, and I'd go, hmm, and then it would say, like, whatever note that is. And then I would run along my QWERTY keyboard until I could hear that note as well. And i it was sort of like painting a house with a an ear tip, ear cotton buds. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just like piece by piece plugging in each note. But what I think was the kind of um, secret reward of that is that not only was I putting in these melodies I could hear, but I then could put in drum lines and I then could go, oh God, I want like this sparkly synth texture to arrive out of nowhere. And so... I think when I compose I'm also arranging as I go and then I can collaborate with say a music producer which is what I did on Fangirls and he comes from sort of the pop electronic music world and we can really have a conversation about when the subwoofer is going to come in I think that's really in hindsight that's been really empowering because maybe if I played piano perfectly I wouldn't be able to have those conversations yeah. I don't know yeah
0: now, uh, the character of Edna, she's about 15, is it? Right? 14. 14, yeah. What were you like as a 14 year old?
1: Very ostentatious. Very, I, well, I, I mean, Fangirls Girls is sort of a love letter to my 14 year old self because my memories of being a 14 year old were walking to high school and the whole walk, not knowing where to put my arms. It really stressed me out. Like I was like, do I like do I hold my elbows? Do they swing down at the sides? I just had no idea how to be in my body. And I remember like running my thumbnail down the sides of my nose and seeing this pile of grease. And it was just like, I was this disgusting, smelly grease ball. But around me, the whole world was telling me that to be Like, to be a teenage girl and to do it right was to be, like, young and hot and sexy. And, like, I was watching TV shows where 30-year-olds who looked like models were playing teenagers and, um, like, all had boyfriends. And I I just remember constantly feeling like I could never get anything right. And I was really um, outwardly assertive in terms of what I wanted to do. And I was very ambitious, but I was internally very (laughs) anxious and unsure of myself. And I think... I think the reason that teenage years are so frequently my muse is that every emotion felt so life or death and every day was like agony and ecstasy, nonstop all the time.
0: Were you a good student?
1: Oof. Um, some classes I would just sleep through, just unapologetically, and some classes like drama, like you couldn't stop me, uh, or English, drama and English, and the others I just truly would sleep in.
0: What about visual arts? Were you a creative? You know, now? I didn't do You're art sure?
1: after year seven. Right. I think it was. I think it was. We did a lot of painting in year seven, and I was like, "What's this?" <laughs> and I'm not so good at drawing, and um, yeah, I think maybe like language, not languages, but like literature, is more my, my thing.
0: You found a lot of your um, creative outlet uh, as a theatre maker with Australian theatre of young people.
1: Yes. How did you discover that? Big ups to ATYP.
0: Yes. How did you discover them?
1: Um, I think when I was a kid, I begged my parents to let me go to ATYP workshops. I'd heard a lot about them. Uh, And I started going when I was 10. I was very, very lucky to go. And then, you know, if you go to ATYP workshops as a kid, you hear about how the teenagers are putting on shows, right? And so once I was about 14, I started auditioning for ATYP productions. And what I vividly remember, my first ATYP production was actually directed by Lee Lewis, right? Right. And it's interesting. It was 14 of us, and we were aged 14 to 18. It was this improvised piece about... Um, I think, child soldiers around the world. Uh, But it was really, it was this extraordinary summer where, and I still am friends with some of the people who did it. We were taken so seriously by Lee. We We were treated as total working adults, and it was just this, rush of of getting a glimpse for a summer into a world after high school where I was treated like an adult and where I could be really creative without having to worry that I was in a room of teenagers and someone would scoff at me because that's weird. Like it was really, it's where I found my people and realized that I I just totally threw petrol on the flame of my ambition. I was like, let's go.
0: So what was it about, you know, that that yearning to be a theater maker that, ignited the passion was it a play that you saw or it was just I mean some people just have it in their DNA also I guess
1: so I think it's something I recently reflected on is I think look I was an only child and so my parents I think I constantly was like the clown in my family at the dinner table you know my parents would say how was your day and I didn't have any other kids I was competing with like I had the mic you know um so I think maybe that made me a bit of a storyteller but I really vividly remember as a teenager, I was one of those kids who always loved to answer the question, what are you gonna be when you grow up? And I'd always go, an actor. And as a teenager, I started to realize that like actresses largely were really pretty women and them being pretty was a big part of their job. And I was starting to notice that like I was a teenage girl who was carpeted in acne and sort of looked like a 12 year old boy and like t- didn't have that hotness thing down at all and had braces. And I suddenly thought to myself, huh, like, do I actually want to have a job that's maybe a lot about what I look like as opposed to uh, how I think? And then going to ATYP, it didn't matter what you looked like. Like we were all little disgusting grommets and it was great, you know, and it was about how interesting your ideas were. And suddenly finding this group of people I could collaborate with it was this really, like, safe and comforting space. And the older I got, the more, you know, I would have friends who would be anxious to get agents and get hot headshots and get a job on Home and Away playing someone's girlfriend. And the more I started to kind of get allergic to a, a dream of becoming an actress, and I, I became way more interested in writing.
0: So what, what's, what are the skills that you're incubating at ATYP? Writing, obviously. Mm-hmm. What else?
1: Um... I th- like deep collaboration not judging others like really um like I think about how when you're a teenager apathy is a survival instinct right it's like you've got to just decide everything else is weird so that you're not weird and often teenagers will define themselves by what they don't like whereas at atyp the opposite was true it was like you win if you're enthusiastic and you are open and collaborative. And so I feel like that's the key thing I got from ATYP. And it's amazing because like some people who I met didn't become theatre makers, but those skills they still use. So I think it's a really vital organisation for that yeah. reason.
0: That's the thing about this art form. It's such a collaborative art form too. You can't do it by yourself. No. There are so many people that come together to create the magic of, of, of the theatre. So with Lee Lewis, you're doing Battlegrounds, and a play called Citizenship.
1: Oh, my gosh. I'm sorry. Okay. Anyone listening, (laughs) what you don't know is that (laughs) Peter sits down with a folio of notes and he is just, wow, I'm staring at pages of notes. I'm very impressed.
0: The uh, Eve Blake diaries. Wow.
1: Um,
0: So you're working with Lee Lewis on those two shows. Yeah. And then she casts you in a play at...
1: At Belvoir. Belvoir. Oh, my
0: that gosh. That You have
1: done your research. The wonderful
0: Susie Porter. Correct. But it's a non-speaking role. Correct. But that's... What an enormously privileged position to be on stage watching actors of that calibre... Oof, yeah. ...every night. What are you learning from that experience?
1: Wow. Um, I think, like... So, I'm 18. I'm, I'm doing my HSC while I, I do this role. And it was amazing, right? Because... Um, I guess at that point, I thought I wanted to be a theater maker and actor, maybe? Some kind of mix between the two. But watching, I guess, what it actually costs every night to do a show, eight shows a week, made me go, huh, I think it started to... It was the beginning of me unsubscribing from the idea that, like, I wanted to be a jobbing actor. Um, I have so much respect for those actors, but just watching that, Especially because that show was really emotional. It was about a lot of family conflict. And just watching the cost of that every night was eye-opening. Um watching a lot of like professionals just make it was fascinating and what I really credit that show with is at that time Belvoir had this amazing policy where everyone I think it was parity pay like everyone got paid pretty much the same so even though I didn't have to go to that many rehearsals the it gave me a little chunk of cash and that that helped me buy my first laptop, which is what I then wrote a whole bunch of plays in, on throughout Year Twelve, while I should have been studying. Um, and and from there, I kind of started discovering, you know, I, I really want to be a playwright. And and interestingly, so the writer of that show is Polly Stenham, who I think started writing it when she was seventeen, and it was on the West End when she was nineteen. So for me, that was just drugs to go. Oh my god, I have to stop writing now, and I have to write a successful play tomorrow. Like <laughs> I think that's the main. I took away from that.
0: I read a fabulous quote that um, that you said once. Young people have unbridled imaginations, excellent bullshit radars, Mm -hmm. and they have energy.
1: Wow, where did I say that? Oh, you said it somewhere. Oh, my gosh.
0: Um, So can only young people tell stories about young people?
1: I don't know that that's necessarily true. I think... I don't think that's necessarily true, but something I reflect on a lot is, like... Gosh, I mean, I'm in my late twenties and I'm writing about teenagers, but I, I don't know what it's like to grow up with the internet um, at the scale that like an actual fifteen-year-old does right now. You know, it's just a totally different ball game. Social media wasn't um, what it is now when I went through high school, and I think that I think there is a lot to be said for actually young people reporting on how it really feels. But no, I don't think that it's something only young people can speak about, and I think that. Um, Something that's really great about writing about youth is that there are some things that will never change about being a teenager. And I know when Fangirls came out last year, it was so exciting to see the intergenerational appeal of that work and to see, you know, men in their 80s feel like they could relate to these 14-year-old girls on stage because there are some things that cross gender and cross time and, like, a first crush is a first crush, you know what I mean? Yep. So, yeah.
0: Yep. Yes, and you don't realize until you get through those teenage years and are able to reflect on it that, oh, that's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. That's okay. We all make it. Mm -hmm. Um, And those experiences we have in our teenage years will make us stronger or define who we are.
1: Yeah. You know what? That's such a good point because actually... I, I remember as a teenager, as I said, like there was so much self-loathing and I was just so, so self-critical, you know? I all the time felt like I wasn't doing anything right. And I look back at my teenage self and she's like this powerful little rocket who was constantly reading plays because I was so nervous. How am I going to read all the plays, Peter? I was like just so full of energy and now i mentor a lot of teenage girls and and through the teaching you know i I encounter so many teenagers and i'll listen to how they constantly apologize when they want to express themselves they go um this is like weird and random and like I, i don't know i'm so weird but basically can i maybe ask you a question and i just remember it so well but i want to shake them and go like you're so powerful like everything's going to be okay and it already is so anyway that's a bit of a tangent, but there you go.
0: You moved to London when you were 19. That's true. What was that for?
1: What was that for? Yeah. Um, was
0: it just a gap year? No. Or?
1: No, so the way that came about is, um, so after high school... I took a gap year, but in my back of my mind, I was like, oh, I'll just, I'll show them all, Peter. Like, I'll just go become a successful theater maker, just like that. Yeah. I didn't really have a game plan. I just thought that's what I would do. So um, I took a gap year, and I did some traveling, and I saw a bunch of theater, and I went to the Edinburgh Fringe. I, I went to Louisville, Kentucky to see a play festival. Like, I was proper drama nerd with that Belvoir money. Um...
0: But you obviously had a hunger as well, and that's really important. You need a hunger that drives you to be that artist. And you obviously were were taking experiences that were going to inform you and and add to your palette.
1: That's true. That's true. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. And, I mean, the thing is, it's so funny. I think about how many plays I used to read in high school. Like, I used to read, like, five, six plays a week. I was obsessed. And that's when I would go to the library of my high school, and I'd asked for plays by women and there just weren't as many as there were by boys. And that's when, I, like, my feminism started to prickle and I was like, wait a second, what's <laughs> all this about? Um, but anyway, anyway I, I thought I would just leave and become a theatre maker. I went to the Edinburgh Fringe and I saw, like, at that festival, so many examples of people scrapping together shows with just, like, one person and a string of fairy lights, you know? So I thought, oh, my gosh, that's how you can make a play. But you don't have to, like, get a bunch of actors. I don't know actors. Where will I find actors? You don't have to get a bunch of crew. I don't know crew. Like, I'm not in a a university theater society. I don't know who to work with. So... Um, yeah, the year after, the year after I left high school, I took a one-woman show to the Adelaide Fringe Festival, and then that did okay, and then I submitted that in the Edinburgh Fringe, and then I decided to stay in London, and I, oh, and I, (laughs) I can't believe I'm saying this, like, I'm only remembering it, but no, I went to the Central School of Speech and Drama for a year in this course. I don't know if they still have it. It was called, um, I think it's called performance arts and it's sort of a hybrid of all of their technical theatre degrees but with a focus on producing and theatre making and there are units to do with writing and directing and it's like a massive kind of salad of a course. So I did that for one year before realising that um, like that school is great and the resources are amazing but I had just signed up to to do so much indie theatre outside of school that I was sort of getting better um, experience and training from the stuff that I was doing and not having to pay to do. Yeah. So I was like, I think, uh, I think I'm think i not going to pay these fees anymore. Yeah.
0: You had a period at the Royal Court and the Young Playwrights oh, Program. Yes. So tell me about Sugar Sugar.
1: Oh my gosh, you have done your research. That's
0: <laughs> why you sound so shocked. I
1: truly though, like no one's ever done this research. Okay, that's a crazy story, Peter. Yep. I once got in trouble for telling this story because someone said it was like outrageous. But here's the full story. So... My last year of high school, I'm writing plays, I'm writing plays, I'm obsessed. I can't ever finish them. I write, like, three good scenes and then I just hit a wall. But, um... But when I was in high school, I'm obsessed with Polly Stenham, right? Because she wrote that face. And she was in... And Tusk, Tusk. And Tusk, Tusk, of Mm. course. And she was in the Royal Court Writers Program. So as a teenager, I just think of this as like mecca. I just think if you're a good playwright, that's where you go. And I remember back when I was in year 12, you had to send them a whole play to get in. So that was my motivation to finish a play, was then I can apply, right? It's years later, I'm in London, and I get, uh, gosh, like I see a tweet or maybe it's some email um, newsletter I see that says applications closing for the Royal Court Young Writers Program. And by now it's three years later. I'm like, oh, my God, remember how obsessed with that I used to be? So I click on their website and they say, send us 10 pages of a play. And I think, wait, they've changed that. Of course they have. They don't want to read all these plays. But I also think, my God, there was that play that I was writing in year 12 when I was obsessed with that, and I think I only wrote 10 pages of it. So I, on a lark, send these 10 pages to the royal court as a weird, like, favor to my 17-year-old self. But then, Peter, I got in. And I was like, uh-oh. I, re- I really hadn't been writing for years. But it was amazing because then I got into this amazing group with other playwrights and remembered how much I loved playwriting. And I had just been making this sort of fringy theater and interactive live art and, like, I've made this show about food that had a food fight and a swimming pool. Like that's where I was operating in. And suddenly I'm at the Royal court with these like proper playwrights and um, oh, I hope that wasn't too loud on the mic. And it was this, like, amazing playground where for 12 weeks they would constantly just tell us to write stuff. And I ended up writing this show called Sugar Sugar, which uh, is about how complicated navigating food is as a young woman. But it was, like, this unapologetic rave of a play. And then this is also outrageous. So there's a producer, I think he's left Australia now, called Tobias Madison Galvin. He used to run a writer's uh, theatre company in Melbourne called MKA and uh, I, like, I'd met him a couple times he reached out, I was like, how are you doing? and I was like, lol, I just sent like, I'm doing the Royal Court Writers Program you go, send me your play and I sent it to him and he didn't reply ever and I thought, oh, okay well, he's the only person I've send this play, sent this play to I just wrote it as an assignment I'm thinking nothing of it and so then he reaches out a month later and I'm like, oh, he's finally replied, he's read it and he's like, cool, we've programmed it in this festival I've got the cast together I just need you to sign off and then, yeah, there was this season in Melbourne that I never saw. I have really no idea how it went. But, um, yeah, that's that story. Terrific. Like, it's a bit weird to recount it. But, yeah, I accidentally wrote this play.
0: But I think it's, it also shows the listener or the, the keen young theatre maker um, how much this business can be about sliding doors and... Mm. Right place, right time. The fact that you clicked on and decided to send something in on a whim and it took off and
1: yeah. obviously
0: talent's involved as well. Oh. But, but, you know, sometimes we have to throw things into the universe and see what happens.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think, like, it's a, it's a funny thing to recount, right? Because I go, gosh, like, I feel so undeserving that I sort of randomly accidentally got into that program. But what I think I take from it too is that when I was in that group, I noticed that a lot of the other writers who got in... um, I mean, there's a history with the Royal Court Young Writers Program that some writers had been discovered there and then got productions at the Mm -hmm. Royal Court. Mm -hmm. So I could sense an energy with the writers of like, I've got to write my best work. It has to be perfect the first time because what if they program me? Whereas I was like, I can't believe I'm here. It was like everyone else is in the Hunger Games and I was just there on a holiday. (sighs) So it meant that the writing that I did in that program was really wacky and free and like... I think that play that I wrote had a talking spoon in it and it was just silly and it's weird that then that play got the response it did from a programmer going, I have to put this on. And I think I reflect on that experience and I go, gosh, if you're not trying to impress anyone and you're just trying to write something that only matters to you and is only for you, that's often when you're going to write the best Mm. stuff.
0: Sugar, sugar, sweet, sweet.
1: Yeah, that's it.
0: And when you're writing a musical... What comes first, the musical, the lyrics?
1: Ooh. Well,
0: being the lyricist and the composer, I suppose <laughs> there's a hybrid. It's all happening at once. Yeah.
1: It? Well, it's interesting. Someone asked me about this recently, and I had to kind of really think about it. So, I mean, with fa- when I was writing Fangirls, that was the first musical I've ever written. And so I was very anxious about, like, what right have I got to write this? So what I would do is these um mad free writes I'd sort of just put a timer on and say you know you can't stop writing and I'd meditate on a certain theme so let's say the theme was the feeling of being a teenager and not feeling at home in your body and I would just write mad sentences and then I would cherry pick which ones s- seemed interesting and then I, I would say them and, and try and notice if there were any rhythms in how I wanted to express them like if I wanted to say them like this with pauses in them. And then I go, okay, well, wh- how does that manifest itself melodically, right? So that was one way in. And then another way in is I would sit um, and I would sort of similarly do these musical free writes in, in Ableton. And then I would spit out these little sections that were maybe four bars long and just go on the, on a walk and, and loop them on repl- repeat and hum to myself and sort of see... I'd take notes of the of the lyrics I'd free and I'd sort of just see what stuck together and coagulated, coagulated. And then, of course, I would come up with these drafts of songs that had like seven verses and were way too long. Mm. And then I would work with my dramaturg on Fangirls. Um, his name's Johnny Ware. He's a genius. And he would help me edit it down. And he'd go, this sentence is really powerful because it tells us something that sets up a bigger idea. Um, this lyric takes four lines to pay off and it's too long. And he helped me kind of condense it down.
0: What's the most difficult thing that you've had to write about?
1: Oh, whoa. That's such a good question. I think, you know, the thing that comes to mind, I don't know if this is the most difficult, but the thing that maybe was the most painful is... So in Fangirls, there's a lot of upbeat numbers, but there's a couple of ballads. And there's this one from the perspective of Edna's mother, who's really just trying to get through to her, and there's kind of nothing she can say that's right. You know, every time she tries to appeal to Edna and look out for her best interests, Edna's like, Mom, don't! Like, she just can't get in. And there's this moment in the show of appeal to Edna where she's just tries to explain, like, this is just all because I love you, and like... It's the fastest song I wrote in the show, but I wrote it while kind of just overtaken with sobs because I, like my mum is this amazing woman and she's so powerful, but her power is, it's like this quiet and gentle power, right? And as a teenager, I feel like I constantly would just huff at how annoying she was, but, and I just, I think about how mean teenage girls can be to their mums, brutal, right? But um, you know, my mom once said to me this thing of like, and it, if you see the show, like it's all over the lyrics. She was like, you know, I know that you will grow up, and there will be things that you don't tell me because you have your own life. But I hope that you always come to me with the really important stuff, and I hope you never feel like when something really big happens, you can't tell me. I just remember her saying that, and, and basically the song is like for my mom. I'll go choking up thinking about it. But I, and Sharon Millerchip the the. <laughs> Unbelievable, Sharon Miller chip played my mother in the show and sang that song and every night we would both just be sobbing because it really like yeah I think that's the one that got me in the gut the most
0: well I spoke to so many mothers and teachers um, after that show and I was saying how does she 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 just encapsulates the, the, that mother daughter relationship so well wow. I mean and, it, and you know Fangirls is about so much more than just a you know a young girl's obsession with a, a rock star it's about that parent-child relationship, which we have all experienced and all go through and continue to go through, um, but expressed so beautifully, um, and especially through performances like yourself and Sharon. So.
1: Oh, that means a lot. And you know what is so telling, I think, is when I first wrote the show, the mother character was kind of just going to be a voice off stage, and slowly, like, and it's to the credit of a lot of older women, they were sort of like, no, you need to put the mum in the show even if we even if it's just to show how much her daughter dismisses her you like she actually needs to have a voice in it and of course if you see the show you realize that across the whole work the mother is offering Edna the stuff that she's gonna need to learn at the end anyway and she's just ignoring her mom and it's sort of it's like this comedic fodder at the start is how annoyed Edna is with her mom all the time you know there's this one line where she's leaving the dinner table and she hasn't touched her bread she's had a bowl of soup she hasn't had bread and her mom's like oh aren't you gonna touch your bread she's like mom oh my god (laughs) she just explodes um, but then, of course, you realise if you if you sort of reflect back that every time her mum's been trying to get through, she's yeah, she's giving her the stuff she needs. So yeah.
0: Well, let's get into the specifics of Fangirls uh, and learn even more. Uh, Limelight magazine described the show as a brilliant, sparkling new Australian musical about young women coming into their power. That will have you swapping stories of first concerts and first crushes <laughs> and humming the tunes all the way home. You got some phenomenal uh, reaction to the musical. Was that overwhelming? Did you expect the explosion that, that happened?
1: Wow. It's like... It's wild to reflect on, right? Because I spent five years writing it, and so that's a lot of hope. I had a lot of hope. But something interesting happened, I guess, right before we opened, which is that... I guess when I had always visualised Fangirl's opening, I had visualised myself in that moment and my collaborators... But what I had never prepared for is that I would be standing there with a cast of like seven other people who through the process of rehearsing I just totally fell in love with. So the feeling that I felt leading up to opening night was less like, oh, God, are people going to like me or not? And more like, people better love these little babies because I'm obsessed with them and they are perfect. And it was sort of... I felt this kind of mother bear thing of, like, people better go off for Paige because she has worked so hard on this. And so when the response came, uh, I, I felt so proud of everyone and so happy for them, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, like, the, re- it was amazing to... At Belvoir, like uh, I think, you know, Sharon was telling me there wasn't one show we didn't get a standing ovation. She was keeping track, uh, and that's amazing, right? But when that happened, I wasn't standing on stage being like, "Wow, they're clapping for me." I felt like, "Yeah, go off!" Like these are some of the the most extraordinary, inspiring performers I've ever seen. So I feel like, yeah, it was it was overwhelming, but it was it was thrilling to share that, especially with young performers. So many of whom it was their first gig.
0: Yeah,
1: and and my favorite thing, honestly, was that. You know, you get programmed at a main stage theatre company, and I had an awareness that like those companies survive on subscriber basis, mm-hmm. which is gonna be like an older audience. It's probably largely white, probably largely wealthy, but I have made this show for misfit teenage girls. <laughs> like, and I've made it for everyone, but they they're my kind of primary audience. So I definitely had a concern, you know, will they find the show? And then it was so exciting as the seasons went on in Brisbane and Sydney to see so many teenage faces and like glinting braces in the audience. And, uh, and that was really fun when they started making like fan accounts and memes and art and, and shrieking in the foyer. So that was a cool part.
0: Well, it's a show that finds itself happily alongside other musicals that, have, uh, that connect with girls and provide positive messages like Wicked and Six. And Mamma Mia, you know, so um, well done. I think it's a a phenomenal achievement. The genesis of Fangirls, how did it all start? What drove you to write about this obsession that teenage girls have?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I've told this story many times. I never get sick of it. Like, years ago, I met a 13-year-old girl who told me she'd met the man she was going to marry. And I laughed at her. And I said, sure, who is he? And then she said Harry Styles. And I laughed at her even harder because he's like, at the time, he was like one of the world's biggest pop stars in the world's biggest boy band. And then she said, don't laugh at me. I'm serious. I would slit someone's throat to be with him. And I was just arrested by her conviction, right? I was like, what is this? And I guess from a place of morbid curiosity, I was like, I have to write about this. So I became obsessed with researching fangirls. And then I quickly realized how many kind of misogynistic assumptions I had made about fangirl culture. I assumed it was going to be super aggressive and competitive and all about young girls competing for the attention of a boy and attacking each other. And I was wrong. Like, that's that's a mainstream assumption about what fangirl culture is. But, like, it's also, like, there are pockets of, of for example, the One Direction fandom that are, like, phenomenally queer. And there were pockets of it that were all about anti-bullying efforts and raising money for charity and about, you know, um, God, like there was this amazing article I read about this girl in India who had been writing a bunch of fanfic and then that that's how she basically taught herself English and then she got into an American university. And there was just so much more um, to this topic than I originally had seen. And there was so much, it, there were so many stories about fangirls that were these extraordinary reflections of young female enthusiasm and its capacity for good. And I was struck by the fact that when, um, in 2015, when a member of the band One Direction left, a lot of the mainstream articles that I would read about it would describe these young women as hysterical and crazy and a bit much and over the top. And I just saw how their enthusiasm was derided because it was inherently seen as, like, feminine enthusiasm, whereas uh, it felt kind of, um, what's the word that I want? it felt kind of unfair that fangirls might be described as hysterical but the image of like young men screaming at a football match might be described as passionate and like that's you know that's passionate and loyal that's the love of the game whereas like women screaming at a pop concert that same image might be really minimized and ridiculed so yeah i realized i wanted to write about that
0: well it's a phenomenon that's been in australia we, we've seen it back since the Beatles' arrival in Australia, mm-hmm. you've probably seen all of those old black and white clips of it's fans amazing, screaming right? at the airport and and at the concerts. So I, I guess you could quite possibly have had grandmothers taking their grandchildren and, and, and would the nanas have experienced the same thing with the Beatles right. as, as their grandchildren experiencing with One Direction.
1: Well, exactly. That was really fun, actually, about the show. It's like people of all generations going, oh, well, my version of that was this. So, yeah.
0: The really clever thing about the show, too, I think, is the production concept. It's almost very immersive. You know, we feel like we're at the concert. Uh, at several (laughs) points I mean the sound design is terrific also uh, the audience participation we're suddenly we're not in the theatre anymore we are at a concert we could be in the mosh pit if we wanted to
1: you know what that's a lot of credit to our director Paige Rattray and our designer Dave Fleischer and our video designer Justin Harrison so spoiler alert but act two opens with basically a concert a pop concert you are at the pop concert of this boy band that all of the characters have been obsessed with for the entire show and you know the concerts coming up you've heard all about that in act one but act two opens with it and there's god there's like lasers smoke machines the subwoofer is rumbling and uh it's it's so much fun because sure enough every night people would scream and get their phones out and wave their phone lights in the air and like performers go into the audience and you know i also think after a year of lockdown that scene is gonna hit hard next year right because no one will have been to a concert in a year so i'm especially in the york at the seymour center it's a much bigger space
0: what was it like in the rehearsal room? Because you're the writer, you're the leading, leading player.
1: Yeah.
0: Do you have arguments with yourself? Do you, <laughs> do you consult yourself? Yeah, um, wow. Were you able to uh, separate the two?
1: Yeah. You know, a lot of people have asked me that and it makes me realise actually how lucky I was to work with Paige. She really supported me and she was like you know we can meet before rehearsals and you can have your writer hat on but then as soon as the clock strikes 10 and everyone else shows up you just be an actor just be an actor until six when we finished and then you can put writer hat back on and she really really helped me compartmentalize she didn't come up to me in breaks and ask me questions about lines she was really good at giving me the space and and I think as well People have asked me, like, did Paige ever direct something? And you were there as a writer thinking, oh, no. But I I never felt that. Like, Paige just, she got the work and she really, really took the time before to ask me, like, what do you want this to feel like? Um, I just think there's nothing she can't do. I really think she's the future of this industry and, like, she's just getting started.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. I think the writing also has a, a very cinematic feel about it. All of those scenes race along, they dissolve into each other. <gasps> thank
1: Have, you yeah
0: so is there a possibly a life for the show
1: on screen on screen oh, peter i'm working on it yeah. It's not easy, but it's yeah, it's in development there's right. not much I can say about it, but i've been, yeah for a couple of years i've been working on it with some really cool people, and I think um i'm just being very humbled by actually how challenging it is putting musical numbers on screen, right especially because. There's so many ways we've seen it done, but I'm interested in a a kind of a new way way to go about it. And yeah, all I can say is it's in development. Uh, I'm very lucky to have, you know, to have been offered a deal and, and be in that process.
0: You mentioned the uh, the, the queer um, following of One Direction. Yeah. So, so I assume there are fanboys. Oh yeah. As well as fangirls. Oh yeah. It's
1: not just fangirls. And actually, so it's really fun. If you see the show, there's a key fanboy character. Um, well, I guess I guess their genders like their gender expression could, could be described as many things, but like played by um, a male actor, and that character is Salty Pringle. You only know them by their online name. Um, but anyway, so what was I going to say? So there's Salty Pringle, but what's really exciting is in Fangirls 2.0, we've added, we've been allowed to add two cast members. And so one is a girl and one is another fanboy, which is really fun. So when you come and see it, it's not just only girls on stage. There's, you know, there's two fanboys. The
0: cast has grown.
1: Yeah. How exciting. It's so exciting. We had seven and now we have nine. But it also means, frankly, that we've got two, um, two actors who will be our swings and who will cover the roles because it is a, I mean, Think about it. It's like a full scale musical, but we only had seven people, which meant that, as as you will have seen, there's constantly people like ripping off wigs, sticking on a new one, <laughs> ripping off costumes. It's like, it's a big job. Huge. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so we're back at Bavois Street next year, but you're playing the Seymour Centre. Yeah. Um, The cast are coming back.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But you won't be part of it. No. Nah. So who, do we have a new Edna?
1: Yeah, I'm obsessed with her, Peter. Yeah. She's so good. Yeah. I feel so excited. Her name's Karis Oka. She is phenomenal. So she graduated from VCA last year. And then she did, she was one of the swings on six at the Opera House, which is a huge swing job because there are six roles in that and she covered all of them um but this is her first leading role and she just I know it's like it's such a cliche right but seeing her tape and watching her sing these songs I was like oh these songs have been waiting for you <laughs> I see so yeah she's amazing and also we have um this actress called Shubhsri Kandia and she is she's replacing an actress who played one of the supporting roles Brianna so that actress is Kim Hodgson she's off doing Frozen she's very fancy but yeah Shubhsri is extraordinary too so I'm I'm really excited
0: do you put elements of yourself in your characters?
1: Oh, I'm sure I do. I don't yeah. help it. Yeah. yeah, I think like every character in the show is a is some facet of me, I'm sure. I'm sure.
0: I hope so. <laughs> I hope Maybe so.
1: that's a bit arrogant me saying that like the young male pop star is a piece of me. I don't know.
0: <laughs> no, I'm sure there's It's in his DNA somewhere. (laughs) So do you have an opening night ritual? Are you superstitious in the theatre? Oh, my
1: gosh. Well, I guess I haven't had an opening night for this show and not been backstage in a school uniform with two mics clipped into my hair. So I don't know what I'll do. Just probably put some sequins on, sweat through them all, cry a bit, scream a bit, you know. Yeah, all that. I don't know. I'm just really... I'm really, a lot of people are asking me, like, how do you feel about it coming back? Are you nervous? And I, I just feel, I just feel so unbelievably lucky in this time to have anything on, let alone a revival, let alone, um, like a show that's super fun. So yeah, I don't know what else do you have any recommendations for opening night rituals?
0: Um, no, it depends whether you're superstitious. Some people go through a particular routine every opening night. Oh. Some people carry something like a lucky rabbit's foot. D- did Some you people have any smoke rituals? a lot. Um, yeah, I Do used I- to wear. Well, if the character allowed, I would wear a watch that my dad owned, just to sort of carry my dad with me through a performance or whatever. But but that was probably the only thing. I, I had to do, you know. And if I hadn't, you always put the watch on. Of course, that's yeah. the, you've got to check your props, don't you, before yeah. you go on. But um, yeah, that was the way of sort of centering myself, I suppose. And um, that's nice. yeah,
1: you said or smoke a lot. Maybe I just take up smoking.
0: Yeah, you could do that. Okay. Oh, look, I haven't done that. I've observed <laughs> people do that, uh, depending on how they handle their nerves. So um, yeah, but you know, maybe. It just depends whether you're superstitious. But gotcha. you're going to have a lot of opening nights ahead of you. Uh, so you better think of a uh, very flattering.
1: Please, Okay, I've got to oh, come up with one. I
0: have confidence in you, Eve Blake. I have confidence. That's very nice. P- um, reviews. Yeah. They're a, a necessary evil, a, a part of this industry. Do you eagerly read reviews or do you put them at bay until... Do
1: you know what's so funny? Yeah. Is, so week before Fangirls, backstage with the cast, I'm like, everyone reviews are going to come out i'm not going to read any of them if you want to discuss them just make sure i'm not an earshot that's my only thing um thanks for respecting that and truly i was disgusting the first review came out and it was five stars and i was after that i just had to read them all right and i was addicted to reading them um i yeah so of course i think you know i tried to not read them for fangirls and i read all of them but i also i really liked all of them there was even one that was um I guess it was three and a half stars, but it had the best pull quotes that we got. It was like, this musical is going to go so far. It wasn't for me because I am an older man and I don't think it was for me, but it's going to do really well. So like, I guess I even respected the one that didn't like it. There was one that we got that sort of, celebrated so much about it but said that the story needed to kind of had some things to solve and that was really constructive so I mean I'm sure I won't always feel this way but I was really lucky with Fangirls that with all the reviews I was like yeah that's that's fair fair mm-hmm. go
0: mm-hmm. what makes you happy?
1: oh my god not a small question Thanks, what makes me happy? Um, you can go
0: down a list or you can... the
1: main thing that comes to mind right now is like I think something that got me th- the Through Fangirls was the joy of watching, um, watching performers just in their element and like thrilling to their job. Um, like it was brutal to, I guess, <laughs> give birth to that show. It was a, it was energetically it was a lot. It was five years of really hard work. It was a really grueling show on my body, and I got quite badly injured. But what buoyed me through the whole thing is just like these young people with these extraordinary voices and limitless talent. And um, I frequently say, and I I mean it so seriously, like I think in the third act of my career, I'm just going to be a talent manager. Like I just, I feel this, this protective energy where I just kind of want to find young, talented people and yell about them. Um, So that makes me really happy.
0: So your third act. So where are you now? This is this your first act?
1: I think I'm yeah, I think there's got to be like a second act where where am I? Am I in my first act?
0: I think you're in your first act. Oh gosh, what act two then? Well, I don't know. Well, where where great. would you like to see yourself in 5 years?
1: Oh wow, I love these questions. Yeah. Okay, where would I like to see myself? I hope in 5 years I'm making checks in my pajamas. Um what do I hope um, I just hope I'm having a really good time working with legends I think that's the key thing is big opportunities can come knocking but you've got to. my manager always says to me um, like if I get a big offer what's it worth in grief like are you working with people who you kind of want to be on the phone till 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 2 a.m. so I just hope I'm working with legends really
0: I love that expression, making checks in your pajamas. Uh, Does that mean you're at home while. Well, just
1: passive income, right? That's yes, the dream, the show's especially playing with music. And the film's
0: playing there. I mean, and...
1: oh no, in five years' time, I'll tell you my absolute dream. Mm. I want, and I've told you this before, but I want fangirls to be in high schools. Like, I wrote it for teenagers, and I won't rest until the day that I see the tallest girl in year 11 play the mom. Like, I just want to go to a high school version of fangirls. I don't care if not one note is sung correctly. I just want to sob through the whole thing, and that's my dream.
0: Well, I tell you, when the when Fangirls becomes available to schools, uh, speaking as somebody who would love to do it at school, ah. um, <laughs> I think it's, it's it's going to be a, a winner. That's a lot my dream. Of schools, yeah, that yeah. is my full dream. Yeah.
1: Just imagine, a, like a, a little kid in a wig playing the pop star. Stop it. Beautiful.
0: Beautiful. Beautiful. So uh, it's uh, two or three months away the revival. Is yeah. it January or February?
1: Yeah, so we I think our opening night is January thirtieth at right. the Seymour Center. And so. tickets, is single tickets go on sale on December first from Belvoir. And oh I've,
0: terrific. Okay. Yeah. I'm All told right, that so. it's
1: already selling pretty well with subscribers. So I guess if you're listening and you want to come, get in. Get
0: in. Get yeah. in, yeah. Very exciting. Eve, it has been an absolute delight chatting to you for Thank the last hour. Thanks really for coming on stages. It.
1: No, thank you. And I, I thought your questions were so considered. I can't believe you have a literal folio of info about me. And I really appreciate it, Peter.
0: That's just like an Asia file.
1: <laughs>
0: There's a lot I didn't talk about. Do
1: you hand it into the government now?
0: Yeah, I have to. I have to uh, deposit it by <laughs> six o'clock
1: tonight.
0: So. Um, good luck with the show, Eve. And, and thank you.
1: Oh, thanks, Peter.
0: Fangirls will be presented again by Belvoir Theatre in 2021. It will play through February at the Seymour Centre. Thanks to Eve for her incredible contributions to theatre and for that super chat today. We return to the stages of opera in the next episode of Stages, but behind the scenes, my guest is retired wig mistress at the Australian Opera, Shirley Germain. Shirley was with the company from the ground floor and was witness to many great performances and triumph of the opera company. She retired after an incredible stint of 38 years. Shirley Germain, my next guest, next time on Stages. Thanks for joining us today. It's always a joy to have your company. I'm Peter Ryers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.